evening meeting of San Francisco Insight. Uh, we'll sit for about half an hour, then there'll be a talk, then there'll be a discussion. Please remember, I'll just kind of go right into the talk, uh, but if you have any questions, comments, reactions, liking, not liking the talk, really pay attention to them because bring them up in the discussion so we can collectively keep investigating whatever I say. Okay, thank you. So um, very helpful to begin by sitting upright, relatively straight without being stiff. course, you could sit on a cushion or a bench or a chair, or you could lie down, or you could stand up, whatever is comfortable for your body. Please begin by adjusting your posture so that you're here, meaning you're sitting relatively straight without being rigid. And you can begin to establish an embodied awareness. And you can very gently scan your body to see if there's any places or parts that are being held or tight that you can relax in a very simple way. Making sure your shoulders are relaxed. That your jaw is not being held tightly. And you can let your belly be loose. You don't not have to have any tension in your belly, your abdomen to be mindful. And let your awareness begin to saturate the physical experience of being alive here right now. 
as you become mindful of your body sitting here or standing here or lying down, whatever shape your body's in, please be aware of the fact that your body is breathing. And the first foundation is very useful for beginning to center, collect, coalesce our attention in the present moment here and now. It's a very simple practice to be mindful of the body and the breathing. to let your interest in the body and the breathing come to the foreground as you're mindful. Not an intellectual interest, but a kinesthetic interest. And what does the body feel like now? What does this breath feel like? And how do I experience this physical moment of being alive and breathing now?
if you wish, you can stay with the body and the breathing for the whole meditation. It's always a skillful way to practice. Or if you feel composed or centered or here with the body and the breath, then at some point you can open up the space of awareness to be aware of whatever is predominant in consciousness. Where you may become aware of sound, hearing my voice, and the fact that you can hear. Or you might be aware of some emotions that are here. You could be happy or sad, excited, irritated. Or you could be aware of some thoughts, ideas, beliefs, memories, plans, all appearing on their own. as you begin to rest in the space of awareness itself. in the foreground of awareness be known as we rest in the knowing of it, not just enchanted or mesmerized by the thought or the story or the idea or the feeling or the mood or the sound, but being aware how everything is simply appearing all on its own. the various manifestations of being alive in body, heart, and mind, sensations and feelings and emotions and thoughts and mental states. And we're resting in the knowing, in the that which knows. without even have to do almost anything. This moment is being known. There'll be the experience and then of course, any reaction we have to the experience, liking it or not liking it, wanting it or not liking it, all being known. You don't have to fix or change anything as we start to be aware and rest in the awareness itself.
Oh, a few weeks ago, last time I was here, I talked about uh, fascism and the Dharma. And uh, it's not exactly a continuation, but there are a few things I want to mention. I couldn't remember whether I talked about the word apocalypse. If, I, if you remember me talking about apocalypse, put your thumb up. If you don't, that's helpful. Yeah, I asked someone, she said I hadn't. So um, I've been looking at the word because people have been saying to me, oh, this is like an apocalypse or it's apocalyptic time, an apocalyptic time. And so I looked up the word apocalypse from the ancient Greek, literally meaning an uncovering an uncovering, a disclosure, a revelation of knowledge. And I always like to look up the etymology of words to see what they, where they came from and what they meant originally. Um, because in, in religious context, apocalypse usually discloses, discloses something hidden or um, uh, it provides uh, what's called a vision of heavenly secrets that make sense of earthly realities. And so even though it may be a somewhat apocalyptic time, there may be some goodness in what we're calling this apocalyptic time, right? Um, and so in thinking about the talk tonight, I was thinking about the different forms of dukkha that are that I've heard about and that you've all heard about or know about this week, right? Which of course includes uh, COVID-19, which is an ongoing uh, dukkha that we've, we've gotten used to. Like, you know, we've gotten used to walking around wearing masks and not be, and having to be six feet apart and all that kind of, like that's just the reality now. And um, so there's COVID-19 and then here in Northern California, uh, which many of us, not all of us are from Northern California, we're dealing with the fires, which are quite horrible and dangerous and life-threatening and uh, land-threatening and plant-threatening. You know, they're, you know, just, I can't even remember how many fires there are, but there are many and we're all dealing with it one way or the other. Of course, I'm in San Francisco and so there's no fires right here, but the smoke from the fires every day now, we're looking on the, uh, on the internet just to see, oh, how bad is the smoke outside? How serious is it? Um, which mask do I wear? Because I have a light mask I wear for COVID-19 walking around and then I have an N95 somebody gave me and I wear that when the smoke is really bad and dangerous in that way. And of course, we're all dealing with systemic racism, which has been going on for 400 years and is still part of the picture of our reality. Um, and um, the shooting of Jacob Blake, which occurred in Kenosha, Wisconsin last, I believe it's last Sunday, got shot in the back many times. You can see it on YouTube. You know, it's just crazy. This is still continuing. And, uh, and then, so there's all these uh, difficulties that we're living with.
and seem kind of apocalyptic, like there's so many happening at once. People keep saying that to me, it's too much, too many. Like, okay, I can, let me, let's just deal with the, the, the pandemic or let's just deal with the uh, um, fires or let's just deal with racism. But all it, it accumulates and people can feel overwhelmed. And so I want to speak to both a little bit the dukkha and also to how one might um, think a little about the overwhelm. But I want to keep adding on the response to... Um, to the shooting of, of uh, Jacob Blake, uh, which one of the mo most interesting things that I've seen was that uh, in the NBA, the National Basketball Association, that one of the teams pulled, decided not to play in the playoffs that day because of what happened, because they're the Milwaukee Bucks and it was, it was close to home, right? It was in Wisconsin. And so they didn't play. And then all the other teams pulled out also. And that's a radical move. And that's something <clears throat> maybe one of the good things, one of the hidden uh, or uncoverings that can happen during an apocalyptic, time, apocalyptic times is the, um, is the potential for a collective democracy that means everybody participates really, and that people use their voices to say what's important and what, and, and so these players who I love watching sports and I love doing sports, sports are good. Um, and they have a lot of Dharma in them in terms of the kind of commitment and devotion and dedication and samadhi needed to be good at sports. And these people, in this case, the, the National Basketball Association players are all young men who are highly talented and have devoted their lives to what they do and are good at it. And they said, this, the game is not as important as dealing with systemic racism. Now that's a radical thing to say and a radical action to take. And so the game stopped for a few days and, and they even talked about maybe that wouldn't happen again, but they decided to, after conferring, not just among themselves, but with the league and the league supporting them to do what they thought that they wanted to act together. So now you have, if I speak classically in political terms, you have the workers and the bosses working together. And that's always a different, all of a sudden it's a leveling of the playing field, right? And we're all in this together. And that's part of what a, a, a collective democracy calls for. And is part of one of the, um, is part of the causes and conditions that are in play right now because of the dukkha in, in this country, especially around uh, 400 years of racism. And, um, and it's, it's, and everybody feels like they want to speak about what's true these days. I had an interesting experience. So one of the things I do to deal with the dukkha that has its multiplicity of both 
you know, that I've already mentioned, all the different kinds of dukkhas that are around right now, is I try to go outside and take a walk, right? Somewhere in nature, because I find nature very uh, healing and kind and inspiring. And, um, and even though there's, of course, we're still dealing with the um, climate, which is also one of the pandemics that we're dealing with, and, and the difficulty and the change of the temperature here on earth. But, um, but still you go out and the trees are just being trees and the animals are being animals. And so I was out and I'm walking and I, I usually I just walk from home, but I wanted to get away. So I drove into the Presidio and then I walked and I found a trail from the ground that went all the way up to the bridge. And I took the trail up to the bridge and, um, and, um, and I get up there and I had heard some sound and then there were all these people there. And there was a demonstration at the foot of the bridge, right? Which I wasn't expecting. And so, and there were all these police in riot gear, right? Because it's a demonstration. And so I asked somebody what, what's happening. And they said, oh, there's two, it was a news man. I asked a news person what's happening. And they said, uh, it's, um, oh, these Trump people, you know, people who supported the Trump and President Trump, they were having a, a demonstration, you know, a rah-rah. And then all these people who don't support the Trump administration showed up and they were having a no-no. So there's a rah-rah and a no-no happening at once. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And, and, uh, and I went in and checked it out a little bit. And, uh, and I thought, okay, do, do your thing, everybody, great. And then as I was walking out, I saw somebody else with sign-up sheets like they were, and I wondered which side they were from. So I asked them, I said, oh, what are you doing? And they said, I, I said, which, which part, are you Trump people? Or are you Black Lives Matters? Were a lot of Black Lives Matters people demonstrating against the Trump people. And so, and, and they said, no, we're not either. We're, we're, we're getting to, we want to recall uh, Gavin Newsom. And I'm like, <laughs> well, wait, help me here. I, I don't know why are we recalling Gavin Newsom? Newsom. And then this guy explained to me, even though he was born in San Francisco and his parents were hippies and he's been a democratic and a democrat and liberal, he doesn't believe in COVID-19 is real. And so Gavin Newsom has shut down the businesses and people losing money. So let's get rid of Gavin. And I'm like, okay, you know, and I wasn't interested in signing myself, but I said, I'll reflect on what you're saying, you know. And so, and so partly I was also aware of my response to everybody, which is I just wanted to take a, a walk, right? That's all I wanted. And I wanted to be in nature. And of course, nature includes human beings who are protesting and, and recalling and everything that human beings do. And so it was very... Uh, and I felt really respectful of everybody, to be honest, even the people I didn't agree with. And there were a number of people I didn't agree with um, because I see it when I see people up close and real, 
they really, everybody really cares about what they're saying and it's meaningful to them. And it's, it's what they believe is true. And so I don't feel disrespectful, even though I can radically disagree with them. So, and then I came home and I was working on a talk and I wanted to write a talk about people who inspired me because I found that really important right now and helpful for me personally in terms of Dharma practice, uh, uh, what, what lifts me up, what opens my heart, what frees my mind from the difficulties I may be affected to or attached to. And so I was, I had two people I was thinking about. One was the Dalai Lama who turned 85 not too long ago. And, and I saw some beautiful things about him. And, and I love the Dalai Lama. He's like, oh, that's, that's one of the good human beings on the planet Earth, as far as I can tell. And, um, and then, but also somebody else who I've learned about, Robin Wall Kim, Kimmerer. Robin Wall Kimmerer really inspired me. So I thought, I'm going to talk about her. Because also, it's one of the things I see in this apocalyptic time, is there's something that, and I don't mean to be prejudiced against men at all, but there's something about that what women are seeing and knowing, or seem to be a little more intuitively in touch with, that's coming to the foreground that's needed in our world, which is partly, not totally, but partly about relationship and a different relationship with reality, with the living world, both human and not human. And so um, I'm gonna read some of this, tell you a little bit about her. She's a botanist who is a member of the citizen Potawatomi, Potawatomi Nation, uh, Native American, um, and who travels between scientific knowledge and indigenous knowledge. And she uh, really looks at the world through two lenses and two worldviews. And for her, trees are not our synthesized, photosynthesizing beings as well as teachers. And so she has a relationship, more indigenous relationship, and she also has a scientific relationship to what she studies. And she's, uh, she's got two books, one of which I have here called Braiding Sweetgrass, Braiding Sweetgrass. And, uh, and I love this, she's got some beautiful lines. She has this one line here. She said, it came to me while picking beans, the secret of happiness. It came to me while, while picking beans, the secret of happiness. And of course, that's an ancient Buddhist understanding. Now that's a joke from Eugene, come on. Uh, but really, I, <laughs> but, but really, but it is, it's like, oh yeah, reality can wake us up. Picking beans, the simplicity of being, of just being right where we are, when we're there, with what we're doing, and the magic of picking beans can bring happiness. And, um, uh, yeah, and so there's a lot to say about her. That's one of her books, which is called Braiding Sweetgrass. Another one she has called Gathering Moss, and she's a moss expert. Like, I am a moss 
not expert. Like I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to remember what is moss? Oh, moss is the stuff on the sides of things, you know? I kind of know, oh yeah, there's some moss here on the rock or something. She's an expert at moss. Just that is beautiful. There's a, like, and it's saying something about her practice, which she's not saying, I'm saying about her, that there's a kind of depth that comes when we learn about any one thing completely. This moment completely, what's here fully, like what's really here, not just the surface of, oh, and yeah, it's moss, right? But also what is moss and how does it function and how long's it been here? And I'll, I'll throw some of that in a little later in the talk. And so, so I was reading some interviews with her, uh, one in the Sun magazine from many years, four years ago, not that many. Um, uh, and um, the person who was talking to her uh, said, indigenous knowledge is that intellectual twin to science. Right, and she said, "Well, no, they're different. Right? They're they're both true, and they're different. Scientists use the intellect and senses, enhanced by technology, but they set spirit and emotion off to the side, right? And those aren't part of science, right? So science can dismiss indigenous knowledge as folklore, right?" And she said, "Indigenous knowledge, which is based on observation." and being alive in relationship, right? Um, uh, and experimentation is that, in, that there are spiritual relationships and spiritual explanations to science, to what they're both looking at in terms of plants, right? And so it includes the spiritual and, the, and spiritual explanations Traditional knowledge brings together the seen and the unseen. And that's something meditation does. We start by being aware with just what's here, a body, breath, thoughts, feelings, and then reality starts to reveal the unknown or the unseen or what may be intuited, but we're not clear about yet. And then we start to have that, that we start to know it, not intellectually, although it may come later as language, but we start to know it directly in our experience, the magic of being alive. Because we, of course, we could say we're similar to plants. We're a living something, right? That's called a human being, right? And she starts, as I read what she says, she starts including everything, causes, conditions, and the karma that comes from causes and conditions. She said, using the scientific method, we look at one variable at a time. You want to look at one thing and get rid of everything else, right? But that's not what you do in the traditional ways of learning, right? Traditionally, you interact with the being in question with that plant, with that stream, and you watch what happens to everything around it. The idea is to pay attention to the living world as if it's a spider's web, 
It's beautiful. It's a beautiful image. I mean, the whole talk is good just for this image. She said, the idea is to pay attention to the living world, this moment, as if it were a spider's web. When you touch one part, the whole web responds. And that's a great understanding of reality. And it's a great understanding in Buddhism. If, you, if your heart and mind uh, is in the right place, it affects all of reality. Because it's one web. We're part of it, even though we're unique and we're sitting here and you're each of you, I'm pointing at all of you and myself, we're all sitting here and we're also part of a bigger web of reality. And they're both true. One doesn't negate the other. The bigger web doesn't negate our particularity. Our particularity doesn't negate the bigger web that we're also part of. Hmm. So, and she goes on, for an, an indigenous understanding, it's a different kind of theory one that centers on the ideal idea of responsibilities. And that's such a beautiful word, the ability to respond to reality, responsibility. And that's something the Dharma also teaches us. The reason we practice, the reason why we want to pay attention is so we can respond to what's true, to this moment, to life, to reality, to what's needed. What is it that allows what creates more suffering and what lets go of suffering. And those all take our participatory practice as does democracy takes our participatory interactiveness. She says it centers on the idea of responsibility. All bees, for example, have the responsibility to pollinate. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Indigenous observer is asking the bee, how are you living out your responsibility? And what about you, flower? How are you living responsibility? So it's a certain view, understanding of reality that she's bringing forward that is so relational and so connected that we're connected to everything. And it's the same when we practice. So, cause you know, we start by being aware of the particulars, right? The breath, the thoughts, the feelings, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the touch. And at some point we start to be aware of what's aware. And of course the awareness is, there's no knowing without awareness. And the awareness itself is aware of everything. And so we start to see not just what's happening, but what's looking at what's happening, what's knowing. And so she says in, in, in indigenous way of thinking, the observer is always in relationship with the observed. The observer is always in relationship with the observed, right? As I watch that bee and flower and study the water, how the water moves, as I observe the growth of the grass in the meadow, I understand that the kind of being I am colors how I see and feel and know. Furthermore, my presence might even be influencing how the world is working around me. And of course, that's true for all of us in our regular lives. 
who and what we are influences who we know, who we live with, who we work with, who we talk to, who we buy food from, or whatever, all our interactions are impacting each other. It's, it's, it's the Buddhist truth of interconnectedness. Hmm. And she says, she says tra the traditional perspective celebrates the relationship. A young person is gonna see things differently than an old person. A daughter and a mother and a grandmother will see it different ways. All of these perspectives need to be brought into bear, need to be brought to bear, right? It's not just one way. Oh, it's all here and it's all true. And so we want to be respectful of the young person, the, the you know, middle-aged person, the grand person. And, you know, one of the translations of Sati's Sometimes, especially in the early polytechs, they would talk about um, to be mindful means to remember. Remember, like that's what it means to meditate and be mindful is to remember. And I didn't understand that for quite a while. It's like to remember what? Yesterday or no? No, but to remember means to remember, to become one. Like if you lose a member like your arm, and you put it back, it's remembered, it, you become whole. And so meditation is about becoming whole. And, and she has this line, she says, ceremony is often said to be how we remember to remember. And of course, many people think of remembering in terms of mindfulness is to remember to be mindful, that's what's needed. It's actually not so hard to be mindful of your body right now if I remind you of that right in this moment. Just feel your body while you're listening and you can be mindful of the body, right? Don't even worry about my words. If, if your sound's up loud enough, if I'm talking clear enough, you'll get the words, but be aware of the body that's hearing it because the body is one of the doorways that opens to consciousness, which is really what's hearing my words. And of course, if we look deeply, it's what's saying my words. I think I'd like to open up some more shades because it seems really dark in here now. Excuse me a second. Is that better? Okay, yeah. Let me do one more. Um, yeah, ceremony, what I was talking about, ceremony is often said to to be how we remember to remember. And ceremony, what she's talking about is certain rituals. And of course, sitting is a ritual. And many of us do it in a ritual way. Like I get up, I go to a different room, I've got my cushion or bench there, and then I sit first thing in the morning. That's a ritual. 
right? And that's a way to remember, to remember, to remember to be here, to remember to be alive and aware of what's alive here. She said, she goes on, she said, ceremony reminds us of our responsibilities to creation. Great line, I think, Dharma line, our responsibilities to creation. It's not to a person or a thing or a statue of the Buddha. It's to life itself, to creation. Right? When you have ceremonies of gratitude, you understand how much the world gives you and you remember your dependency through the ceremony itself, the food, the regala, regala and the time spent, uh, you are giving back. You're putting energy back into both the material and the spiritual world. The two are inseparable beautiful understanding of non-dual reality. The two are on, you're putting energy back into both the material and the spiritual world. The two are inseparable. Ceremonies are as much about reciprocity as, as, they, are, as, as they are about gratitude. And then she says another line that I really love. She said, we should remember that that our curiosity exists in the human realm, that our curiosity, and that's something we, that's innate in, in kids, in humans. And of course, we're all big kids now, but, um, but the, the, um, uh, the beauty of, if you've ever been with a little kid, they're so curious about everything, you know, what's this, what's this, what's this? And even before that, they before they know how to say what's this, they pick it up and put it in their mouth because that's how they figure out what it is. Is it good to eat or not? Which is what many animals do. She goes on to say, she said, it's sometimes said that we humans are the youngest brothers, sisters of creation. That we humans are the youngest brothers and sisters of creation. We haven't been around a very long time and we should be humble and pay attention, which is another piece that she says many times is pay attention, that that's key to her work as a botanist and as a scholar and from her life as a native person in this country. She says, patience and commitment are key to learning from a being or a place, right? And of course, these are, these are fun, fundamentals of Dharma practice, right? One of the paramis, one of the perfections of a Buddha is patience. And of course, commitment, devotion, dedication is what it takes to learn about ourselves and the life that's sitting right here and keep discovering more of who and what we are, right? And then she talks, like I said, she talks about attention. She said, paying attention. Um, we can learn so much. And she reminds me of Saira Utejaniya, who always says, ask questions as part of practice. Like, not just you, your practice being mindful of the moment, but also you say, well, what is it? What's happening? Why is it happening? When's it happening? What does it mean? He just said, keep questioning, he says, often. And he's, he really understands the investigative uh, 
uh, factor of enlightenment, the investigative factor. He's always inquiring into reality. And so Kimmerer is saying, you know, uh, uh, pay attention, imagine what a reciprocal relationship with a place or a thing might be and ask, how does this land sustain me? And how do I sustain this land, right? That of course, we're all living on the earth. How do we, how does it sustain us? And of course, we're eating the food that comes out of the earth every day. It's magical and beautiful. The design, whoever designed it or whatever designed it. And then how do we sustain the earth, right? We, and so we can sustain the earth by expressing our gratitude for the land, by living in a way that the land will be grateful for our presence on it. And of course, this is a cutting edge for human beings right now, for all of us, in terms of the climate difficulties in our world. She's very, uh, she's very fun in my language. Uh, she takes students, right, because she teaches at universities and she teaches at uh, New York State University now, but she also has an indigenous uh, uh, school that she set up both, both about uh, botany, biology, and, um, and she takes um, her students through the fields near where um, she lives and she and the students say wow you can eat the cattails and the leeches and she says oh yes of course take a stroll through the forest and almost everything you see is edible or medicinal or useful in some way and so it's, when i hear that and i'm like i mean i'm i love nature these days but i am not a nature guy right i grew up in detroit and Detroit was a little too something for me, meaning I was just a kid and I wanted more cities. So I moved to New York, right? And then I went and moved with my, my theater group to Oregon, which was way too uh, not city for me. So I came to San Francisco to get at least some city. It's, San Francisco is not New York, but I like New York a lot. But, but um, you know, she's, she's talking about the... Uh, relationship with the place and the re reciprocal relationship with nature that is something I'm still learning about, really. And, I'm, and uh, I must say, as I get older, it's more and more um, rich and touching because it's so clear that I'm just, on one level, I'm just another living thing like any plant or animal here in this world, like the world itself. And so she says, paying attention to the reciprocal relationship here. How does the land sustain me? How do I sustain the land? And by expressing gratitude for the land, by living in such a way that the land will be grateful for your presence on it. Yeah, I love those lines. And then I think, wow, I've got a lot here about her, too much. I'm just gonna do a little more because I wanna hear what you have to say. So she's a moss expert. Here's a little more about moss. She says, moss, the woman asks her, what have mosses taught you? 
right? And you could all think about what have mosses taught you? <laughs> like when I think about that, I think I have no idea, nothing. No, I don't know anything about mosses. And she says, mosses teach sustainability. They take little from the world and yet flourish everywhere, whether in the city or in the wilderness or an old stone wall at the edge of a farm. Uh, they're not the biggest or most complex species, but they have managed to survive on the earth for at least 350 million years. Like that's, I'm impressed with that. I like numbers like 350 million years. We'll see if human beings last that long or, or we won't see, you know. She says, mosses were the first plants to come out of water into, onto land. I mean, of course, that's something I have no idea. And it's so, for me, it's so inspiring to keep learning more about reality and seeing how much I don't know and how much more there is to discover about what's true. And it really brightens my heart, even in the middle of all the dukkha that's here, that's part of our life now. But still, there's still so much more to learn. There's so much mystery to life itself. Right. And the woman asked her, are there any uh, Potawatomi words that can help change our perception? That's her, her nation, Potawatomi, Potawatomi. Um, and she says, uh, one that I write often is Pupawi. Pupawi is the word, which means the force that causes mushrooms to rise up out of the earth at night. Like, I mean, I feel like I'm, a, I hope some people are enjoying this because I totally love that idea. Oh, like there's a force that, that uh, causes the mushrooms to come out of the earth at night, right? And she says, it's a word that shows appreciation for the mystery behind physical actions. And it's something we never think about. Of course, that's what mushrooms do. They, you know, they grow there. And, and, you know, but we don't really take it in fully. And here, maybe the last piece, the woman says to the Hondas, Hondanosami Confederacy in New York, once known as the Iroquois League, is said to be the oldest living democracy on the planet. Is there a connection between this early practice of democracy and a more inclusive view of non-human species? So, right, like this is before the Western creation of democracy, which is the native democracy, which has been here before any of us or our ancestors got here, right? And she said, yeah, it's uh, the Handanosani uh, Confederacy is a model of representative democracy. Six nations coming together, each contributing its voice to the whole. If we could say that each species in nature should have a voice, then it would be the democracy of species, right? And then, yeah, there's just so much here. Okay. The last piece, I will say one more piece. It's about gifts, because she keeps talking about what's given. 
not just taking from the earth, but what's it giving us? And she says she prefers to ask what gifts the land offers. Gifts require a giver, a being with agency. Gifts invite reciprocity, reciprocity. Gifts help form relationship. Scientists aren't comfortable with the word gifts, so we get ecosystem services instead. Those, that term arises from a different worldview, but both recognize the way the land sustains us. When I get up in the morning and breathe the sweet air, I try to remember all the beings around me that have worked hard to make this sweet air possible. Right? I'm grateful for the air I breathe that's being given. And it's one of the things that I've learned in the Dharma somehow that it's all given, right? And it's true. Maybe I've learned it in my prayer. Every moment is given. This moment is just a given moment. This breath is a given breath. This sound, this smell, this taste, this touch, this feeling, they're all, it's all given. We're not in control of it, really. Reality is giving us the magic of itself in my language. So I'm going to stop there. Any thoughts, feelings, perspectives, agreements, disagreements? Please raise your hand, go to the bar. Uh, uh, at the participants, you can find your hand and raise it in that way. I'm not going to, I can't, it's too hard to call on you by looking around. And of course, I love to hear from you. It makes it all more interesting. Lee, please unmute Don Lee. Hi, Eugene. Wait, I got it. Oh, there you are. Hi, Don. How you doing? I'm doing. Um, <laughs> um, your your talk, uh, you know, reminded me about Suzanne. I think her name's Samard, who's done a lot of studying on the interconnection of trees through their roots. Uh huh. Um, and it's a kind of a great thing with. Um, thinking about our view of these like standalone items, you know, they're, they're like each individual tree is its little individual, but the reality is of how they're all interconnected and sharing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a great um, metaphor for, I think us and how we're all affecting and touching others. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Even though it's not um, straightforward. So it was just good to hear and just think about the, the metaphors that we get out of um, nature and how those can kind of uh, feed us in a spiritual way and kind of make us realize the um, preciousness of not only our life, but the life on the planet. Yes. So thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. And, you know, it is, there is something about waking up that it's, it's so simple on a certain level, like go pick some beans and you could be happy or, or just be right where you are fully and you may be happy in that moment because all of reality is right here, actually. So, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Robin or David? 
one of you two. Please unmute yourself. Okay. Um, we just watched a documentary called The Wisdom of Trees. Uh -huh. And it talks about the interconnectivity of trees to the rest of life uh -huh. in amazing ways. Things like that trees give off these chemicals that actually contribute to our well-being when we inhale them. Uh -huh. That trees give nutrients to the oceans. When uh -huh. trees were clear-cut, the fish in the oceans would die. Uh -huh. um, and it talks about uh, a project in Manitoba run by indigenous people who are holding on to their land to be able to facilitate this kind of interconnectivity. But it was just an amazing documentary. Beautiful. And what's the name of the documentary? Call of the Forest, The Wisdom of Trees. I put it in the chat just now. Great, great, good. Thank you. I was going to ask you to do that, but I don't look at the chat so much when I'm talking to people. Great, thank you. Thanks for bringing that in the room. Okay, Karen Francisco, which one of you is speaking? You have to unmute. There, I, I did. Hi. Karen, Karen speaking. Hi, Karen. Hi, I just want to thank you for for introducing me and, and probably others to Robin Walt Kimmerer. Um, this is a really difficult time, and I and I feel like your talk, and and really it was almost her talk was um, kind of put this time into a bigger context. Uh -huh. and just reminds us that um, that's not all there is, that there's so much more, that all of this is happening at the same time. Right, that's right. It's so important. And it is something the Dharma teaches us is to keep seeing the bigger context of causes and conditions and karmic results and also what's seeing. Right. Yeah. Good. Yeah. 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 No, because that's part of the really bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you. There was one other thing I was going to say. Let's see if I can remember. Uh, oh, I know what it is. Just to tell all of you, and somebody can put this in the chat. So there's um, um, there's an on being interview, which is how I met her. Yeah. You know, with her and it's recent it's like a week or two ago and you know she's just beautiful being and and a teacher for all of us okay anybody else Cameron, Maggie, who's going to talk? Hi there, Eugene. Hi, everybody. I'm just, um, I'm teaching a book called Nonviolent Communication. Uh-huh. My students, and, and we had a, um, a quote that resonated with everybody that I've been thinking about based on your talk, which is, the greatest gift 
is to receive with grace. And as you're talking about everything that nature offers up, I just, I'm thinking about such a gift to ourselves and others to receive those gifts with grace. Totally. Yeah. And to really see it's a gift. Because mm-hmm. then we also see another really important Buddhist teaching that you all know, but I'm going to mention it, that she's aware of and is part of her world and her worldview and her understanding, which is dana, right? It's dana. It's all being given, right? And so when, we're get, when, we, uh, uh, when we come into harmony with dana, we're coming into harmony with something that's much bigger than who and what we are. And so, and it's, it's really a little bit of a shame, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, but um, uh, that uh, so much done is associated with money, because money is one form of giving, but there's so many other forms of giving that are happening every day that we give to one another, that we give to our friends, that we give to the plants, that we give to whatever we give to, you know, and it's like, I mean, it's one of the things, um, sometimes I get yelled at politically because I'm not very, um, uh, like, like I wasn't, I was, I had no anything about yelling at the Trump people today, even though I'm totally anti-Trump, but I had no desire or anything to be, to yell at them. And people said, uh, oh, you know, you're too something, you're too, you know, liberal. I don't know what they say, you know, but you're meaning, meaning, but for me to give people my respect, that's pure Donna. And it's not even something I'm doing. It's like, of course, you know, it's human beings. And I, and, and the really big picture that we were just talking about from a minute ago is of course seeing everybody's doing the best they can, including the Trump people, even though I may hate what they're doing, they're doing the best they can. And so there's some, response to that organism that is still kind and it's not you know even though i think i know really what should happen and i do think i know what should happen but and i wish to hell they would listen to me but that's not the way reality works and so i'm also able to be aware of myself in that field of particulars that i'm part of a bigger field Right. Yeah, great. Good. Good to see both of you. Okay, I'm gonna, nobody's raising their hand. I'll read a little more from, from uh, uh, Ms. Kimmerer, Kimmerer, from Robin Kimmerer. Um, 
she's asked, you've written that uh, ecological insight is the music of the spheres, music of the spheres. And she says, it's an old phrase for the principles and forces that make the universe work, right? Ecological insights and observations of nature are an appreciation of those physical laws to which we are all subject, right? So it's really, she's talking about causes and conditions and seeing them and being respectful of the causes and conditions. She, said, she says ecological laws are, are like perfectly composed music and there's a beauty in harmonizing with them. And, and again, in, in terms of our practice, what we're learning to do is come into harmony with the way things are. Come into harmony, to harmonize with the way things are so that we can respond kindly and skillfully and wisely and even fiercely at times but it's through harmony, it's not just reactivity, right? She says, the forces that make the clouds drift over our heads are the same forces that propel our breath. The water in our cells is the same as the water at the bottom of the ocean. So again, and in terms of Buddhists, this is one of the, one of the when you really do Satipatthana practice, which we did some of last year or the year before I taught a class, um, uh, it's, the, it's the elemental nature, you know, of uh, earth, water, fire, air are part of what's here and part of what makes us up. And that's, that's a, you know, an ancient tradition in Buddhism to be aware of that both internally and externally because it's part of everything. It's, it's, and she says, the water in our cells is the same as the water at the bottom of the ocean. No matter how you look at it, it's still two hydrogen atoms attached to an oxygen atom. A love of kinship that chemistry implies. Also beautiful, beautiful pointing at our collectivity of the uh, interpersonal, interrelational, being of who and what we are, right? And she uses a word that she loves, which is kinship, that there's a relationship. It's a related world, each thing, including us, including this moment. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, one more from her. The, the person asks her a final question, getting down on your knees to dig in the garden or inspect a plant through a hand lens, as you sometimes do, can resemble a posture of prayer. Are those types of activities spiritual for you? Yes, she says. The act of looking, of paying attention is akin to prayer for me. And so that's how you might think about your practice this week. It's like prayer. And your prayer is just to pay attention to this moment, of to this breath, to this thought. To, what's a thought? Where do they come from? Pay attention. Don't try to think the answer. Pay attention to what happens as you observe the thought itself, right? Where did it come from? And what's looking at it? both become part of the ongoing inquiry. Mm -hmm. 
And then uh, I'll end the evening. Oh, oh, we got another question. Hey, Miru, please unmute. Hi, Eugene. Hi. Hi. I was going to just uh, just share something based on your talk, and then you just mentioned the thoughts. So it's kind of related to this. So it's such a good timing. Um, I This weekend, I watched the documentary of uh, David Bohm, the quantum physicist. David Bohm, I'll mention the name in the chat. He's a quantum physicist. Um, yeah who was trying to connect the quantum physics and the general relativity in the, and he was a contemporary of Einstein too. He was a bit younger than Einstein. And he, in his research, as he, deep, as he deepened his research, he basically came down to the, what is the thought? <laughs> uh, yeah. He even had that uh, amazing conversation and interaction with Krishnamurti, also Dalai Lama as well. So this is the film that Dalai Lama this year uh, advertised on his birthday um, as a preview. Um, so it was really interesting that um, he endorsed it and he, he was part of that documentary too. But I wanted to read some parts of uh, what David Bohm said about thought in his book. He says, for both the rich and the poor, life is dominated by an ever-growing current of problems, most of which seems seem to have no real and lasting solution. Um, clearly, um, we, have, we have not touched the deeper cause of our troubles. It is the main point um, that the ultimate source of all these problems is in thought itself, the very thing of which our civilization is most proud, and therefore the one thing that is hidden because of our failure, failure seriously to engage with its actual working in our own individual lives, in the life of society. And it was just so interesting because he, it's a, uh, and this is kind of related to what made human as human. We are so advanced intellectual, mm -hmm. but also to what, um, what she, what the, the writer you're quoting said was, it's also our intellectual that makes us destroy the, the earth too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, right. yeah. Yeah, that, that, that we're so, uh, immersed in the thought without understanding the connection to the nature. So it's just so interesting how it's all kind of intertwined and then not realizing they're intertwined. Yeah, no, very important. A very, it's a very important piece, which maybe I should just give a talk about thought at some point because thoughts are phenomenal and amazing and beautiful and will drive you crazy, you know, or can drive one crazy. and. And we end up thinking that's our, who we are. Because what if we're not our thoughts? I mean, that's, that's, for me, that's kind of fun Buddhism, right? When we see, oh, the thoughts are just 90% 90, 90 of my thoughts are just doing themselves. I'm not doing them. It's, it's great when I think, want to think about something and I'm proactive. But mostly, no, the thoughts just keep happening on their own. And a lot of the time I believe them. But it's really interesting when I don't believe them or when I'm aware of them instead of cathected to them or attached to them or identified with them. And then it's a different world. And that's a living world. That's, and that's part of what's so beautiful about uh, Robin Kimmerer. Um, is she's, she's saturated in a living world and teaching us from that aliveness. Yeah. So thank you.
Okay, everybody, now we're done. I will read the last quote. This is from Sayada Utejaniya, and I like it a lot. He said, at a, sim at a subtle level, reality can only be understood. It cannot be seen. At a subtle level, reality can only be understood. It cannot be seen. It will be understood and known to be so, but it's not like you were looking at it as we experience all other objects or things. It's an understanding of, rea of the reality of that experience that you're looking at. And I, I added on a little to try to make it more clear because it's a little um, uh, esoteric the way he says it. But it's what he's pointing at is the true knowledge comes in their direct relationship with the aliveness that we're paying attention to, even though if the aliveness doesn't look so alive it's still there's something here that is quite magical. And we start to know it, not just by seeing it, but by feeling it or sensing it or starting to become one with it in some way. Anyhow, we'll send a little sharing of merit to end the evening, offering our good wishes, may our good fortune, the fact that we have the time and place and teachings and community to study the Dharma together. May that good fortune go out in every direction, in every realm, in every world. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings, human, non-human, animal, non-animal, may all, may all beings, all plants, may everything awaken and be free. be with you everybody thanks for being here i think i'm here i'm on next week i'll see you next week um remember if you ever have anything you want me to talk about send us an email and uh it'll get to me okay please take good care keep waking up everywhere thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.